Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. And I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, the parable of the bags of gold. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's word. Good morning, church. Well, it's good to be with you today. And uh, I, um, we're, we're in the middle of a series called Reach. It's actually kind of a kickoff for us, um, not just for the fall, like Kate said, the new things happening in the fall, but really how we see God leading us as a church in the next 10 years. Uh, we just sort of turned the page on 10 years as a church last year. And so we want to talk about, okay, God, what is the vision that you have for us? Because um, the, probably the best way to describe our relationship with God is that we are followers um, of Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit. And so followers are always trying to understand, hey, where are we being led and how do we follow? And, and it's a following of faith, like Kurt said, the songs that we have been led in this morning. And so if you're new here today or, just, or you've maybe been away for a while or you're just coming in, um, you're going to have some time to just digest and say, okay, God, where are you leading us and, 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 uh, and how, what does that mean for me individually and what does that mean for our church? And one of the things I love to discover is that as you're a part of this church and even if you just showed up today um, and you've never been in church before or you've never been in this church before, that what God is doing in a community is also so connected to what he's doing in your life as an individual. And so many times I've um, seen like how God is, is kind of connecting what he's doing at a broader level but also where he's leading me personally. So this isn't just sort of a vision for a church, capital C, or 
uh, the church, um, upper room community church, uh, or a building. We don't even have a building. So this is about what he's doing in your lives and in his people. And so I'm trusting this morning that God has something for you. Um, my, uh, my wife works part-time for a company, actually, that's led by someone in our church. And what they do is they provide um, memory books for, uh, for people who have passed away. And so their families, as they come and do the funeral, the funeral provides them with a book that actually allows them to celebrate and reflect on the life of the person who has passed away. And so it's interesting because every so often, Jen will be working on a book. And every time I see her working on it, it's the life of someone who's passed away. You know, and, and it's their name on the cover of the book. And then the family kind of puts together pictures to try to attempt to capture what this person's life was about and, and to sort of commemorate them in the moments of their life. But it's sort of, it's kind of a strange thing to be sitting there looking at all of these pictures of someone alive, realizing, well, what triggered this whole thing is that they are now not alive anymore, that they've passed away. I was reading an article recently by, um, by a woman who's a, a nurse, a palliative care nurse in Australia. And she has spent... Um, uh, time over a couple of decades with people in the last three months of their lives, like with hundreds and hundreds of people in the last three months of their lives. And she started to write down some of the observations or the things that they said that, that were in common. And she ended up turning it into a book because it was so popular what she was writing down. Um, and one of the pieces she talks about is the top five regrets that people have in the final three months of their life. And this is kind of a stunning sort of study, right? To sit there and just talk to people as they know that life is over, what do they reflect on it? And in particular, what, what do they regret? And it was interesting, she sort of categorized the five um, kind of titles. I read them all, and there was two things common in both of them. One was a deep regret, and the other one was a, a tragedy. And they didn't use that language, but as I read, I thought, this is a tragedy. The deep regret was this, that they didn't take enough risks. They, they said it in different ways. Like they said, like, oh, I wish I had the courage to live the life that I knew I was supposed to live rather than the life other people wanted me to live. In other words, I wish I'd had the courage to take the risk to just do what I knew I was supposed to do. There were other people that said they wished they had spent more time with their family. They spent too much time working. Um, there were other people that said they, um, they wished they had had the courage to deal with the stuff that they knew was going on in their lives rather than just shut it down and remain bitter and angry. That's also, all of this kind of encapsulates risk. They wish they had had the courage to take a step of faith or a risk that they knew they should have taken all the way along. But the other side, alongside of it, that I read as I just kind of read some of the comments was the tragedy. And the tragedy is this, is that the risks they did take weren't worth the reward that they got in the end. That they had a feeling of, you know what, I sacrificed a lot for something that in the end I realize now it wasn't worth it. That's probably the two of the scariest things you could reflect on in your life, right? And, and what I'm saying to you isn't new. We've all sort of heard that, and maybe you've, maybe you've been with people in, in their final days, in their final months, and they articulate things like that. But it's so interesting because they would have been from different walks of life, would have had different jobs, different socioeconomic situations, different ethnicities, um, different life stories, but what they, they all had something in common at the end when they, when they landed next to this nurse was that they were going to die. And at that moment, all of their differences melded away and they had clarion understanding of this one thing in common. I didn't risk enough. And the tragedy of saying, I actually sacrificed for things that in the end weren't sacrificing for. They had such clarity in the final months of their life. It actually should be 
like a blinking light, like a lighthouse or something to all of us who say, well, I don't think that will be me. And, and of course, we never know. But to say, why, why is it that those who are near death always have so much more clarity than those who think they are in the prime of their life? And saying, in retrospect now, I understand so clearly what I didn't get at the time. It should be a message to us that we need to risk. Jesus actually, when he came to earth, one of the things you'll notice, and it's even in the language of this parable, but is that he talked about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've been in church before, maybe even if you haven't, when someone says heaven, you think of something up there and something in the future, someday, one day, right, that we all hope we go. Then no matter what you did in your life, everybody at your funeral says you're going there, right? Like, it's this idea uh, of heaven. And, and so when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, we think, oh, he's talking about a future. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, and this is something you have to realize every time when you read the biographies of Jesus, understand what he's saying. He was not talking about a future someday, one day. He was talking about a reality that was all around us that we were tempted to be unaware of. Um, somebody described it to me this way. They said, um, you know, if, if you consider like this piece of paper is in two-dimensional relationship to this table, how far does it have to leave the table to become in three-dimensional relationship to it? Just that. It's a breath away, and yet it's in another dimension. And that's what Jesus was saying about the kingdom of heaven. It is a reality that is a breath away. It is right there, but you don't see it. And so when Jesus came, he said, I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you that it is actually, if I can use this word, reality. That if you think about these people at the end of their lives, they were expressing some kind of thing like, I didn't get what reality was, and now near the end of my life, it's all clear. And as Jesus comes to us in the Gospels and, in, and as he came to earth, he began to tell them, I need to help you understand what reality is. The kingdom of heaven is the world according to God. It is the world as it really is according to the one who made it as it really is. And so whenever he describes the kingdom, you and I in a sense should lean in and go, oh, I need to get this because this is what reality is. So I can actually begin to live my life not disconnected from reality but in close, as close in touch with it as I can possibly be. And this parable that Serena read for you is one of those parables of the kingdom. And Jesus says, it'll be like this. And he tells this story of the bags of gold. And the story is really about this one thing, about risk. So the kingdom of heaven is about risk. And in it, he sort of describes this story, right? And it says a few key things. That this master gave his servants bags of gold. And all of them got, one got five, one got two, one got one. The issue isn't who got what. It said it was all in accordance with their abilities. In other words, each got what they could handle. But it was all an incredible amount of wealth. And it was his wealth that he entrusted to them. And then he left for a long time. It, it says two of them multiplied, doubled what they had. And, and, and when we were t uh, talking through this parable last year, I made the point to you that there's no, these guys weren't like, they didn't go to the racetrack and double their money. Like there was no way to double your money in that culture unless it took a long period of time and if you bought and sold many things. So these first two servants would have had to risk over and over and over again in order to, at the end of the day, have double what they were given. 
There was no way they could have put it and, and, and shorted a stock or something and suddenly doubled their wealth. There was no market like that. They would have had to buy and sell businesses. They would have had to create wealth. And so these guys would have been risking over and over and over to come up with a return that was twice as much. And, and so they do that. And the third one, for reasons we find out later that are a bit perplexing, just takes the money, buries it in the ground, and moves on with his life. So think about the first two, it would have radically taken over their lives. In other words, most of their life would have been taken up with this thing that had been given to them, which Jesus actually says is the kingdom. So they took this thing, they realized it was incredibly wealthy, and they put it to work, and over a long period of time, as it took over their lives, they had doubled their wealth. The other servant digs a hole, puts it there, puts the dirt back on, and goes back to his life as if nothing had happened. Once this time passes, after a long time, the master returns. And the first two servants say, look, we've, we've doubled what you gave us. And he says very, something very interesting to him. He says, come and share in my happiness, and I'm going to give you more. Like he said, now you're going to be entrusted with more. You've been faithful with what I gave you, which is already a huge amount. But now because you've been faithful, I'm actually going to give you even more than you had before. And I'm going to invite you in to share it with me. Get that? It, it was at first his wealth that he entrusted to them. At the end, they were invited to share his wealth with him and enter into happiness. Well, the third servant, it's harsh. You read those words even when Serena reads them for you and we go, this is God's word, thanks be to God. You know, that guy, throw him, out into the, throw him out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What happened with that third servant? I mean, the master is livid. And he says, oh, you know, I, I buried it because I knew you're a hard man. And he says, he says strange things. He says, you harvest where you're not sown. In other words, you take what isn't yours. It was his. The master gave it to him. It belonged to him in the first place. And he says, oh, you really? You knew that. I'm like that. Then you should have at least put it on interest with the bankers, and you have a little bit of, a, of an interest return. Wouldn't have been much, but it would have been something. Instead, you just buried it, and he kicks him out of the household entirely. It's kind of crazy, actually. I mean, it's a bit strange what the servant does, but the master's reaction is so strong. What, what was Jesus getting at? What was the master? Because in, the, in this picture, the master is, is God. And, and we find over later, Jesus is sort of calling himself Lord. What was Jesus concerned with? Not the equal amounts, but equal risk. Because in the kingdom of Jesus, those who play it safe are empty-handed in the end. Playing it safe is not a value of the kingdom of God. That's what the parable was about. That servant was too scared about what would happen if he did something with what he was given, so he did nothing with what he was given. The others weren't commended necessarily because of the amounts, because the second servant didn't bring as much as the first servant. He was concerned that they did something with it that they risked. The one who played it safe was empty-handed in the end. And Jesus is saying, pay attention. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Playing it safe is not a value in this kingdom. Why did the servant um, do this? There's a few things that we can think from the text. 
He didn't know what he'd been given. He, he didn't really realize the value of what he had been given. He didn't know the one who gave it to him. He clearly didn't know the master. I mean, the master invited them as servants to share his happiness. And clearly, he wasn't a hard man. He didn't, he didn't understand it. And he didn't understand what would happen if he risked. He didn't get the, ro- the reward. And ultimately, what played in his life is what plays in every one of our lives when we refuse to risk, and it's this. We overvalue what we have, and we undervalue what we will gain if we risk. We overvalue what we have right now and say, you know what? I can't let go of this. I need this. This is what gives me stability. This is what I can count on. I'm going to overvalue this and think, you know what? The best thing I can do with this thing is hang on to it and keep it. And we undervalue what we might get if we put it in play. We undervalue what we might gain as a reward, what gains might come from it if we actually risk, which is why then playing it safe becomes our number one goal, our number one strategy of living. Because we overvalue what we have, and if the risk of losing what we have is too great, therefore we play it safe. Jesus was trying to tell his listeners and all of us, who are still his listeners and his followers today, that the values of the world around you are not the values of the kingdom. Because in many ways, we live in a culture and a mentality that says, what I have is mine. I need to keep it as much as I can and hang on to it. I should not trust what other people say I should do. And I got to live for myself, but try to be a nice person along the way. That's basically what our culture says. Hey, get what you can get for yourself and try to be nice along the way. Jesus says, that's not the values of the kingdom. See, the, the, the third servant did not want his life to be disturbed by what the master had gave him. So he just buried it and moved on and said, you know what, I'm just going to go back to my life because my life, I know it's safe. I get it. That, I don't know what to do with. I'm just going to leave it there. And Jesus says, that's what some people do with the kingdom. They don't know what to do with it. They realize, oh, this is going to disrupt my life. So you know what? I'm just going to bury it because I don't want to change my life. I just want to keep what I have. The other two servants, it took over their lives. It totally changed them, but they realized in the moment what they had in their hands. And Jesus says, this is the value of the kingdom of God. This is the way the kingdom works. It works when we risk. It works when we understand what do we actually have in our hands. And I was thinking about this, and, and I, ca- I kept trying to think it through. So it may not come out right, but track, try to stay with me here. Um, it's interesting, right? All these people at the end of their lives, they regret something. But, but think about what they regret. Some people regret that they didn't take a risk and do the thing that they wanted to do for a living. That they just did what everybody else told them to. But other people regret that they did what they did for a living too much and they lost their family over it. Because what happens if you take a risk and do the thing that you know you're called to do and it'll give you so much fulfillment? What the possibility is that you could lose yourself entirely in it and you devalue your family. It's not risk for risk's sake, in other words. It doesn't matter 
it's not about, what well, doesn't matter what it is as long as we risk, as long as we bungee jump or do whatever, and at the end of the day, we have, you know, we, we, we checked off our bucket list. The, the issue that everyone else's bucket list is different than each other's, we all covet what each other has. Some people have lives that they regret having, and other people are like, man, I wish I could make a lot of money. Other people are like, I regret that I made so much money. It's like, wait a second, if we're all envying each other's stuff and thinking that's what we should have done with our lives, maybe there's something else entirely that God is saying you need to value. that transcends family, that transcends money, that transcends job satisfaction, that is bigger than that, and that's what the kingdom is. It is the life of God, is the, is the reality of God. It's not like Jesus wasn't saying, life with God is this thing you do a couple hours a week and try to make sure you know, you're, you're being a good person and, and you're religiously observant. It's something that is so valuable that you're meant to understand it and it takes over your life. But in the end, you have no regrets. In the end, you go, ah, I didn't overvalue what I had in my hands, and I didn't undervalue what I was going to get in return if I would only trust God and step out and risk for the sake of the kingdom. Part of what we need to realize in this story is what God is saying. What you have received in Jesus is more valuable than anything else in this world. It's so much valuable that it says, hey, this is actually worth risking everything for. Now I realize, wow, what I have, what I thought I had isn't as valuable as what I'm going to gain in return. This is one of those things that I've been thinking about lately that has made me really uncomfortable with the way I think in life. Because it seems like the more God does in your life and the more he blesses you, the more risk-averse we become. It, it seems like the longer the journey in life, the more we get to where we think we're trying to go, the more afraid we are to actually let go of what we have and lose it. And Jesus says, hey, you don't just play it safe for one point in your life or uh, risk for one point in your life. The more you risk, the more you gain. The less you risk, the more you play it safe, the more empty-handed you are in return. We as a church have actually begun to sort of digest this and say, hey, we believe that God is calling us actually to step out and risk. And last week I shared with you this kind of 10-year vision that we have as a church. Like what do we think is going to happen and where do we see God leading us in the next 10 years? And the 10-year vision we put in front of you is said, we, in 10 years we want to see five congregations of upper room impacting 3,000 people in, this, in the places where we live. The vision that we put in front of you, the reason we feel like this is actually a God-honoring risk is, is because we believe this, that what Jesus has done for us isn't just for us. That what we have actually been entrusted with is, is of such inestimable value that it's meant to be given away. The values of the kingdom, Jesus says, are those who say, actually now my whole life is going to become radically risk-taking in light of the, of the goal that I have been given. I said to you that this is too good to be true for just you. That there's a world around us. And we could think of neighbors, family, friends, work colleagues, whatever. Thousands of people all over this city who don't realize that God is not actually sitting up there judging them. It is actually moving towards them in grace and love and forgiveness. They, they don't realize that, that the one person who loves you exactly like you are, which is what we all want, unconditional love, and yet, who has the power to change us into more than who we are, which is actually all what we all want, transformation, is God himself. And he actually comes to us. There are people all over this, 
uh, people that you mentioned the word church and they, they don't think transformation. They don't think unconditional love. They don't think grace. They just think judgmentalism or hypocrisy or institutions or that's not for me, that's for you. I do yoga, I do something else. That's you, it's not me. They don't realize actually this is the kingdom that comes to every one of us. It says this is gold. And if you play it safe, you'll be empty handed. If you put it in play, you get more. I follow Jesus because he continues to change my life. He continues to speak into every part of my life, into my marriage, and the way I view my finances, and the way I view sex, and the way I view parenting, and the way I view uh, myself as a person, what it means to be fulfilled in a job, or what it means to love other people. And I go, man, there are so many other people that need that gold of the kingdom. I cannot just keep it to myself. And so our church has said, hey, God has done some amazing things in our church over the first 10 years. What if we were willing to take a risk and actually see him do it, you know, five more times in the next 10 years? And, and make no mistake about it, it is a risk to do this. I know some of you, when we shared this vision with you, were like, why are we thinking about this? Like, we're, we're all sort of, aren't, aren't, we, aren't we good? Like, there's some big risks involved in doing this. It's a risk to actually plant new congregations. To have some of you that we all love each other, but to say, hey, we're going to send out a hundred of you to, to plant a new congregation in another part of Vaughn or another part of the cities around Vaughn. That, that, that would be a risk to actually go and say, you know what, I'm willing to actually go with that group and start something new. Like maybe you were someone says, I wasn't a part of this thing from the beginning. It would be a risk to say, well, I'm actually going to leave this and, and, and start something new. It's a risk to actually, when God raises up new leaders, like I told you, I wouldn't even be in pastoral ministry if we hadn't planted this church. I just got sucked in to the vortex, you know, of faith. All of a sudden you're like, okay. I sound like, uh, you know, Godfather too, right? But it, you just, all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I'm wind way over my head. I'm doing stuff I never thought I would do. Like I'm way out in the deep, like that song says, like out in the ocean. I can't feel the ground. I'm totally trusting in God because I don't know what I'm doing. And yet it's a life of faith I would never trade. I was like, man, I'm glad I didn't overvalue what I had in that moment and undervalue what God wanted to do in my life. We said that happened to many of you as we planted this church. And so if we plant it again, there's going to be more risk because he's going to call more of you to do things. You're like, hey, God, I'm not ready for that. I don't know if I could. It's actually a risk to raise the $1.2 million we're talking about to actually get a permanent space. And to some degree, I would say, friends, that's the least risky thing because you can always make more money. God can bring stuff out of nowhere. But it actually, the, when we actually have to give financially, it actually kind of rocks our world and makes us think, because it's one of the things our culture trusts in more than anything else, is money. What's going to be there for me when I retire? Well, everything that I've saved for retirement. Except everybody in 2008 realized, wait a second, it's less than what I've saved this whole time. What just happened? I can't actually trust that. That's not where security comes from. Security doesn't come from me feeling confident and capable to do everything that I'm called to do. Actually, when I have to step out into the deep and realize, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm totally, I've never shared my faith with another person. I've actually never talked to somebody about what Jesus has done for me. You're way out in the deep when you do that. That these are risks that it actually takes to reach new people, to say to someone that you've known for a long time, say, you know what, I love you so much, I just cannot help but tell you this. This is what Jesus has done for me. These are the risks that will actually call us to actually reach out into people. We're, we're talking about raising money to actually bring a, a Syrian refugee family here. 
It's going to be a risk for some of you that are saying, yeah, I'm going to help them figure out how to speak English. I'm going to help them figure out how to furnish their house. I'm going to figure, help them figure out how to get a job. I'm going to actually allow my life to become disturbed because even though my life's busy enough and I got other stuff to worry about, wait, there's this whole, this is, it's, the, it's the largest refugee crisis we have had since World War II. 65 million displaced people in the world, half of whom are children. We're saying, okay, part of raising money, this 1.2, the first 10% of that is going to go to our friends in Guinea, uh, building that new home, and also to bring a refugee family. But it's not just money. It's actually going to disturb our lives as some of us are trying to help them actually live a new life here. It's risky. Why would we do it? See, only, what's my line? When we are more afraid of losing what God has for us, then losing what we already have, then we're free to risk. You get it? Like, I'm afraid of losing what I have. Let's just be honest, right? If, if I, we have to give, we have to step out or whatever, what are we afraid of? We're like, well, if I leave this spot that I know is comfortable, makes sense to me, all the numbers work, I, can, I feel kind of capable or whatever, and everything's comfortable and I want to serve. If I leave that spot, it's a risk. But when I get to become more afraid of lis- missing out on what God has for me than losing what I already have, then I risk. Because I'm like, you know what? This is going to cost me something, but I really want that. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but God says there's more. There's a happiness to be shared in that the master offers me if I would only be less afraid of losing what I have and be more afraid of missing out on what he has for me. And once I get to that point, then I'm free to risk. And so I, I want us to think about what, what would we miss out on if we don't take this step? If we don't take a step to plant new sites, if we don't take a step to raise this money, if we don't take a step to actually give this money away, what, what would we miss out on? Well, I don't know about you, but I, I don't ever want to have to turn somebody away from church on a Sunday morning because we don't have enough seats. That someone maybe who has written off God and written off the church and whatever says, you know what, maybe I was wrong, and they'd actually want to come in one day and say, you know, actually tell me who, who, this, who Jesus really is. We have some extra seats here, but we keep growing. And I don't ever want to get to the point and say, I know you really want to find out who Jesus is, but we're full. And we're in a city that's growing, they say, to be 500,000 people in 2030. There are so many people who long to know the love, forgiveness, and grace of Jesus Christ. There are some of you sitting here that never would have thought you'd even be here or even want to know this or even sing those songs, and yet it has changed your life, and you know, hey, I'm not the only one. And I'm not okay with saying to those people, or would have, if it had been you saying, sorry, we're out of room. I'm not okay with saying to some of the kids in our neighborhood that my son keeps calling saying, is junior high starting, junior high starting, junior high starting, you want to come? I'm not okay. We're already at 35 in our senior high and junior high in that ministry space that we have. Like, if you've been in there with 35 adults, that's one thing. 35 kids, like, that's another thing. God bless our youth leaders. <laughs> I'm not okay with saying, well, we've run out of room. We just can't fit any more youth. I guess the rest of them will have to do something else. One of the things that burned me up this week, this, this building we're trying to get, it's the one place in the city that is, that is zoned not for churches, but is it, it is zoned for strip clubs and massage parlors. And the guys who own the land said to me, VJ, we're holding out because we're trying to wait for the city to open up the bylaw door to let us actually have a church there. And the guys who own the land say, VJ, we already got an offer. We thought it was from a registered massage therapist, but it's not that kind of massage therapist. And he's like, my... my, my Partners are saying, let's just keep it on the back burner. Let's just take it. How long is this church going to decide? And he's like, I don't want that in here. I say, yeah, you don't because that's actually a front for human trafficking. So you don't want that. He's like, I know I'm waiting for you, but we just need the city to, and I was like, I was literally crying. I said, God, seriously, 
If somebody wants to open a massage parlor and traffic people, they can do it tomorrow, but we can't get a church in there? Are you kidding? This is what burns me up. I'm not willing to let it go. I'm not willing to say, well, it's okay, that's fine, that's what the, the zone for in the city, let's go. When we are trying to fight the very thing that those things are permitted uses for, we are trying to actually get girls out of human trafficking. And, and tomorrow, if they wanted to sign the lease with them, they could. You better start praying, church. We are in a fight, that kind of fight. And it's not against bylaws or mayor's office or anything. It's against, it's against the kingdom of darkness that wants to claim this city. And I'm like, no, I'm not okay with that. That's not why God sent us here. And so I, I, I'm way more afraid of missing out on that, on, on establishing like a, a beacon, a lighthouse in that corner of the city than I am afraid about what it would take to actually to, to raise this money and to move over. I'm way more afraid of missing out on that. I'm way more afraid of missing out on, on being able to bring a Syrian refugee family in here than what it's going to cost me to get. And, and we got to get more afraid of, hey, what are we going to miss out on? Because the more we get obsessed with what we would miss out on that God has for us, the more we start to go, you know what, I'm not overvaluing what I have anymore. If I could put this in play to even gain a fraction of that, it's worth it. I want to uh, call somebody up here to just give you a little bit of a story of, of her story of faith and journey as it relates to, to giving in particular. And, and, um, and I hope that as, as she shares, it just reminds you of the journey. Hey, each of us has something that God's poking us about and, and what would it mean to put that in play? You know, you might say, well, Vijay, aren't, aren't we being reckless? Like, is that, is that reckless to say, like, oh, you know, obviously to sell everything, yes. And, and don't we need to be wise and all of that, yes. But let me ask you this. When was the last time you took such a risk that if God didn't come through, you were going to fall on your face? When was the last time you took a real faith flyer where you say, God, I, I feel like I, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for the kingdom. I'm doing this in some way, and I don't know if, if I'm going to land okay, but I trust you. And I don't mean something foolish. I mean something actually faith-filled for the kingdom. When was the last time we took a rest? Or, do, or is most of what we attempt doable within our own capacities, in which case we don't need God at all because we can get it done? And then we say, why don't I feel God close to me? Why don't I sense him sustaining me and strengthening me? Because we're only attempting things that we can do in our own strength. We actually, practically speaking, don't need him to come through at all. I said to our, our board, I said, when was the last time we as a church took a flyer? Like a real, it was when they hired me. Like, I don't know if they were joking, but I, you know, I'm serious. Like, you know, and most of you didn't take that risk because you didn't have a choice. You were just stuck with me. And so you kind of had to come along for the ride or you left. Um, but, but there was a few of us. So it was like the first kind of disturbance in our church in 10 years. But really, like, when was the last time we actually took a risk to do something and say, man, if God doesn't come through, we can fall on our faces. Well, every one of these things that we're doing for this 10-year vision, like, we could try to start a new church. It could totally fail. You have to know I'm okay with that. Like, it, it'll wreck me for a little while. But I'm like, if you, if you can't be okay with the loss, you can't risk. If you overvalue what you have, you can't, and undervalue what you're going to gain, you're never actually going to step out and risk. So we said, hey, this is going to actually disturb us, you know, and, and if we grow, our, our goal is to kind of grow to about 400 and then send out 100 every time. Every time that'll happen, that's going to disturb us. It's going to stir things up. It's going to cause some of you are going to say, yeah, I'm going to go and start something new, and I don't even know if it's going to work, <laughs> but I'm willing to take the risk. I'm willing to take a flyer. We have people in our church, some of whom are contemplating moving away and moving out of the city, in some cases even moving out of the country, and they still said, Vijay, no matter what happens, we're still in for this campaign. 
Because they said, you know what, we're not giving for ourselves, we're giving to somebody else. We're giving for somebody else. We're giving for a future, for a future reality that says that's somebody who's not overvaluing what they have and undervaluing what God's going to give. They're like, hey, I want that so much, even if I'm not actually going to get to receive a part of it, even if I'm not going to sit in one of those chairs, even if I'm not going to be part of one of those new congregations, I'm still willing to give and trust. When we as a board came together and said, okay, we actually need to give 10%. We wanted to raise, to give 10%. So we were coming to this meeting, and I was actually not on board with that. I thought, you know what? We've raised enough money for Guinea. This is actually what we need for our building. And the number kept going up in terms of the estimates. So I was like, I don't think we can give like 10% of this campaign because that means we're going to actually increase the campaign and then give away 120000 We were all over the place in that meeting. By the time the meeting was done, we had all agreed with our hearts we were going to give 10%. We said we're going to give the first 10%. So if we only raise $120,000, we're giving it away. And that was when I finally felt free to go and raise the rest because I'm like, you know what? Like, this is a flyer. God's like, hey, you have no idea what I can do if you're willing to trust me. And I know, so me, I'm free because I'm like, hey, the worst thing that comes out of this is we get to support Guinea for two more years and we bring a refugee family from Syria. I'm good with that. But that was what God did in our hearts, just in, in our leadership team in that short period of time. And so here's what I want to challenge you with is, is to make kingdom risk a way of life. Like ask yourself, when was the last time I really took a flyer? for God's kingdom, that if he didn't come through, I was going to fall on my face. When was the last time I did that? Make this a way of life, saying, I actually want to be someone who is continually recognizing the value of what I could get and not overvaluing what I have to keep. And as we head into this next 10 years, there's going to be various times, whether it's giving or whether it's someone saying, hey, would you be willing to lead that? You know, you get those calls from us. I know, I know you see our numbers and you don't answer them because you're like, they're going to ask me to do something crazy. And I'm always like, hey, welcome to the club. I don't feel capable either but would you be willing to do this? Would you be willing to try this? Take, take a risk and share your faith in Jesus with somebody who you've never actually gone there in your conversation, never actually gone there over the dinner table or in your friendship. To actually say, God, I'm gonna do this and I don't know what's gonna happen. I may fail, but I trust you. Why would we do this? Why would we kind of stir stuff up and actually make ourselves take risks on a regular basis? Because I don't know about you, but on my deathbed, I don't wanna have those regrets. I don't want to say I didn't risk enough. And I don't want to say I overvalued the wrong things. So today I'll go, okay, God, I trust you. I actually believe that song we said, like, give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and your love is great. I just want to bless you with the ability to hear God's voice to you. Wherever you are in your faith journey, wherever you are, as it finds you here today. That story that Kurt shared when, when Jesus came to the disciples in the boat, Peter responded personally, and Jesus addressed him personally. So you have a God that is not just the God of miracles over all of creation and through all of history, but he is your God as well. So I just want to bless you with the ability to hear him speak to you and the courage to follow him. Do you receive that? Amen.